Good evening, everybody. Um, as you can tell, I'm not Wes. Uh, Wes was able to join us tonight, but uh, Daniel had a soccer match tonight. So if you want to get the latest scores, see Wes after, after service. Um, tonight we're going to keep going through our study in 1 Samuel 21. And um, if, you want, if you have an ink and paper Bible or a digital, go ahead and, and find your way there. Um, kind of set the stage of where Samuel first, first Samuel 21 is going to take us. Um, Daniel's been a fugitive on the run, enemy of the state, whatever you want to call it. He's been that for about one to two years. Um, there's just a few words written on the page, but there's a lot of time that happens as we read those words. David was anointed as king 10, maybe even 15 years ago. So he's he was called to something, and he's had to wait a long time to step into that calling. Uh, the theme of really 1 Samuel 18 through 21 and even after is David's going through a season of pruning. And I was talking to somebody earlier, and we were like, well, what is pruning? And uh, I'm an amateur gardener. Uh, you can, my backyard is kind of empty, so maybe you don't want to take my gardening advice. <laughs> Uh, but pruning, it means things are being taken out of David's life. Hopefully in the future to bear more fruit. And, and God is allowing things to be taken away. Sometimes God is taking them away uh, because the goal for David is to have complete and total dependence on the Lord. As David is running and he's a fugitive, he keeps going to different people and different things and leaning on those. And the Lord is saying, no, we're going we're gonna to take that away, and you need to lean on me, David. Draw close to me, David. Uh, at a very young age, David is promoted to a high rank in the military. Back in 1 Samuel 18, it says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Whatever battles Saul sent David to, David had great success. So that Saul set him over the men of war. I don't know what over the men of war exactly means, but he is a very high-ranking uh, leader in the army. Like a general, like a general yeah. Uh, later we find out that David is uh, the captain of the king's bodyguard. That is a very high and trusted, responsible position. But just one chapter later, it's taken away from David. In 1 Samuel 19, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him. Uh, this is a, the worst way to be dismissed from a job, right? <laughs> your boss is spying on you so that he can end your life. That's, that's how David is uh, demoted. So he's lost his position. He's lost his this prestige of being this high-ranking official. That's taken away. You might think after this, he might uh, want to talk to his wife or talk to his family. Uh, his wife uh, is going to be taken away from him, too. Back in 1 Samuel 18, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. We have this budding romance that, that, takes us, that starts there. And just a, a short chapter later, on um, this very night that Saul sends men to kill David, it says... Um, Michael has helped David slip away and escape, and Saul is interrogating his own daughter. And Michael answered Saul, 
He has said to me, why should I kill you? In other words, he's she is telling his dad, the man I married tried to kill me. Um, when Saul hears this, he doesn't, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't do any fact checking. He just says, you know what? That is high treason. It's a capital offense. I'm adding that to my case to go kill David. So he's had his position, his prestige, his wife. That relationship has been taken from him. As David goes on the run, he tries to go to Samuel, the man that God used to anoint him. Maybe I'll, speak, I'll, I'll seek some spiritual counsel and maybe I can find shelter with Samuel. If Saul can't mess with anybody, it's, it's going to be Samuel. Maybe that's his thinking. Back in chapter 18, the good chapter for David says, uh, David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. David's looking for someone to listen. Hey, all this injustice is happening to me, Samuel. What's going on? Can you help me? But that, that, self, that, that safety and that shelter is extremely short-lived. And in chapter 20, verse 1, David fled. We're going to hear that phrase over and over again. David escaped. David fled. David is, is on the run. He's lost his position, his prestige, his wife. Uh, the one person you would think would be the spiritual counselor. That's been taken from him and Samuel. He also has to leave his best and most loyal, trustworthy friend behind. Back again in the good chapter 18. As soon as he, David, was finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as much as his own soul. Uh, last week we talked about few of us have been fortunate enough to have a friend like Jonathan. And we saw the challenge to be a friend like Jonathan to someone else. Are we, are we being that kind of friend? But just a short time later, in chapter 20, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because you have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Jonathan is saying, you, you, are the, you will be the, you are, you are the chosen one to be king. Even though by hereditary, Jonathan would have been king, he's, he's saying, no, David. He's recognizing David as anointed. And he, David, arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Right, this dear, dear, close friend, they've had to leave, and Saul is driven a wedge between them. Has anybody had a season like this where it feels like anything sure, anything safe, anything comforting is just being taken away from you? Maybe it's position or things or people, but those things just keep taken away from you. And you're left asking, well, God, why? Sometimes the better question is, God, what am I supposed to do and learn in this season? But that's not the first question I ask. It's, God, why did this happen? Make this pain stop. Fear and desperation cast this long shadow over chapter 21, and we're going to get there. Um, scripture has a lot to say about fear. Some people have done the tallies. The command to not be fearful, they, they put it as high as maybe three or 400 and some people like to say, well, there's a commandment to not be fearful for every day of the year. 
right? Because we often are given to fear. And, and during these ongoing seasons of fear, sometimes we're tempted to, to stop looking up at God and asking for his direction, trusting in him. And we fix our eyes on those things that make us fearful. We, we stop, we, our eyes come off of God and come on those things. We focus only on what we can see. And, and scripture gives us some good examples where people ha- are successfully face their fears and sometimes other cases they, they don't. David gave us a great example when he fought Goliath. David had his eyes on God and, and what God had promised. Right? When, when David said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against the armies of the Lord? David's not just being creative with his put-downs. He's using covenant language. That guy's not under God's covenant. I am. We are. He looks at the the army behind him. Do y'all think the Lord will forsake his covenant? No, and he, full of faith, he goes and he accepts Goliath's challenge. In the negative example, poor Peter, he gets picked on a lot. Peter walks on water. Just think about that for a minute. Do you you believe that? Peter is in the boat. There's a storm. They see Jesus walking on the water. And Peter says, hey, just Jesus, command me. I'll walk out on the water and meet you. Jesus gives the word, and Peter walks on water. Do you believe that? Peter believed it. And then he took his eyes off of Jesus and saw the wind and the waves, and they overtake him, and he sinks. With great mercy, Jesus picks him up. And they, get, they get back in the boat. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, as he is being killed, people are hurling stones at him. His eyes are fully fixed on God. And instead of maybe giving into violence or trying to defend himself, he dies full of peace and compassion, praying for the souls that are taking his life. There's no fear in that man. David is being constantly pursued by Saul. He's looking for an earthly solution. He needs it now. Have you ever gone through that kind of season? Keep that in the back of your mind. I've been through that, that kind of season. We'll, we'll share a little later. Um, if you're already there, we're going to read uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 6. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling. We see another case of fear, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with what I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, 
for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before, from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So here we see that word again, fear. Uh, David comes up to meet this priest, Ahimelech, and it says, a lot of people say, Ahimelech is trembling with fear. And why, why would that be? Ahimelech is a priest. Why would he be trembling with fear? Uh, think about who David is at this point. Um, he's captain of the king's bodyguard. He's a high-ranking official. It's the king's son-in-law. And as time has gone by, there's been a pattern that people can start to see. Everywhere David goes, Saul follows. And at this point in time, Saul is uh, given to paranoid delusions, violent outbursts. And so pretty much David is almost this foreshadow of Saul coming around, and it's not a good thing. He asked David two questions. Why are you alone? There's no hi, how you doing? Good afternoon, how can I help you? Why are you alone? It's kind of a weird question. When I first read it, I was like, well, why would he ask this? But it's the captain of the king's bodyguard. Why aren't you protecting the king? You should be next to the king. And no one with you. You're a high-ranking official. What, what are you doing running around by yourself? Like this, there's a lot of red flags going off in Helimelech's mind. And I think Helimelech is really very afraid that, well, David's here. That means Saul is probably on his way. So he, he is sh trembling with fear. So that's Ahimelech. David is desperate. He needs supplies. He needs, as we see, he needs food and he needs weapons. Again, he's, he's looking for earthly solutions. David sees the fear in this priest. And let's, let's, read, let's read David's answers together. And I, I want to ask you all a question. Let's reread uh, verse 2. The priest has just asked David, Why are you here? Why are you alone? Or why are you alone? Where are the men? David said to Helimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. When you hear David's answer, if you had to pick a word that described David's answer, what would it be? <laughs> we have lie. Any other, any other, uh, any other words that, that come up? Deceit, vague. Um, as a side note, if your friend ever tells you to meet me at such and such a place, something ain't right. So that lie, deceit, vague, uh, this, this passage is interesting. Commentaries seem to divide into two camps on this passage. And uh, if you want to research it and discuss it, uh, I'd love to do that. A lot of people divide into this camp of David's just out and out lying. He needs to get out of there quickly with the bread and the, the weapon, and he needs to get out. Other people are saying, David's just being really careful with his word choice. And, you know, when David says the king, he's referring to God. And they, they say that because David refers to God as king in many of the Psalms, that, well, David is, he's massaging the truth, but he's trying to say that God sent him here. Um, I wasn't satisfied with that answer because 
We never see the God's command given to David. If it was there, it's not written down for us to see. So um, I tend to be more in line with the David's desperate. He's in a hurry. Just a quick little white lie, and that'll move on, move things along. It's really one of the first chinks in David's armor that we see. So when David responds, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter or why I've charged you. I think David's pretty much saying, Ahimelech, do you really want to pry into the king's secret business? I know you're afraid of Saul. You really want to pry into his business? After this, Ahimelech immediately starts talking about bread and weapons and, oh, yeah, let's get you what you need, David. He does not want to pry into that at all. And no one with you. David, you're the leader of the king's bodyguard. You're this high-ranking official. Why are you by yourself? I made an appointment at such and such a place with the young men. Like, he's literally using that phrase, such and such a place. Um, as you read other passages in 1 Samuel, whoever this author is, it's likely Samuel for the most part, um, he's taking great care to give you the names of places and locations for events. Uh, you can go online and find maps that, that track David's journey. For someone to use the phrase such and such a place sticks out like a sore thumb. It is, it is vague and shrouded in secrecy. This is not a good sign. If we can cut David some partial credit, a lot of people say that he is trying to, Ahimelech, this is a need-to-know basis. You don't need to know because Saul's probably going to come behind, and if he asks questions and you know the answers, that's going to be bad for you. So maybe David is trying to protect him in some way. So now we've gotten that out of the way. We have this little white lie that moves the conversation forward. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. This is David. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Um, and as the priest responds, he tells him, this is holy bread. It's not common bread. There is bread, but this is all we have. And um, I'm not saying this picture represents that, but it's pretty close. Um, if you want to look at the description of further detail for this, you can check out Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. It talks about the gold table. There's a loaf of bread for each tribe of Israel. Um, only the priests are allowed to eat this. This is not common bread. It's holy. It's part of how God said, this is, we're going to take care of the priests. They can have this bread. It's not just to be given out. David's but David sees that, he's hungry, he, he needs to just, please, let me have it. Um, another interesting thing about these loaves, is kind of a side note for a future conversation, uh, they're likely placed on that table every Sabbath. So we'll, we'll pick up on that word Sabbath a little bit more later on. But these are only for the priests. They're off limits to you, David. But Elimelech does something interesting. Eventually, he's going to give him the bread. And at first glance, we would say, well, this priest is violating the law. What's going on? Why, why would he give him the holy bread? Um, if we flip ahead, 
to Mark chapter 2. Let's flip there. Mark 2, 23 through 28. Jesus, once again, is having a dispute, and he's being harassed by the Pharisees because Jesus did something on the Sabbath. Jesus, you can't do that. Jesus' disciples happen to be walking through a grain field, and they pluck some, some of the heads of grain off so they have something to eat. Which, by the way, was, was fine with the, with the Mosaic Law. You could take from your neighbor, take a couple of grains to eat, don't bring out a sickle and, and sack and start harvesting, okay? You can have a meal, but don't, don't take, don't harvest from your neighbor. In Mark 2, 23, it says, One Sabbath he, Jesus, was going through a grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord over the Sabbath. Pharisees keep trying to trick Jesus up on the law, and hey, we got you. And they don't realize that they are talking to the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus commends this priest way back in the time of David for his discernment. In this case, mercy, someone's life being threatened, is trumping the law. This man is hungry. He needs bread. And as we see in the passage back in 1 Samuel, it's the Sabbath. We're about to put fresh, hot bread out. This other bread, David, take it. You need it. And... Maybe Ahimelech's contemporary scolded him for that, but Jesus says, no, look at this example later on. Great, uh, great commentary on legalism. If that is something that you're, you're dealing with. So that takes us through verse 6. David's got some food, but now he needs weapons. It's almost ironic and comical. The great general has no weapons. What's going on, David? But before we get to the second request and seeing God provide for David, we see verse 7. We see a spy. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. A lot of people uh, give Saul a lot of credit. He has one of the best intelligence networks out there for a king. David can barely do anything without Saul knowing about it. Even as he shows up to see this priest in this temple, right away, one of Saul's, uh, one of Saul's men knows about it. Now this is just one of those tidbits for later on. It's like you're watching a movie and you see something, they're going to reference it later. Uh, we will see this uh, with disastrous consequence in the next chapter. But now we move to God's provision, part two. And let's read verses eight and nine. Then David said to Halimelech, 
Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. There's that little white lie to try to move this along. I feel like Saul might be breathing down his neck almost, and just a little, little white lie to move things forward. I need help. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. It's not like the, the priest had a stash of weapons and an armory. They, they just have this one sword. And... Um, you know, Wes mentioned it, you know, way back when. It kind of has this circular thing going on, and uh, that's, that's maybe what it looks like. You can go online, and you'll find a lot of archaeological and metallurgical nerds that try to, hey, we found the sword, or it's this one or that one. Um, that's, that's a picture of what it looks like. Um, at least from our point of view, uh, it's a very distinctive sword, and, and David has very hands-on, literal hands-on knowledge with this sword. He this sword should jog his memory, and for lack of a better word, it should jog his faith. It should take him back to that time when God used him to kill the giant. But I don't think that happens. He just takes it with the bread and the supplies, and he's on his way. So David has the bread. He has the sword. He's, he's, he's twisted the truth a little bit, but he's, he's on his way. Um, but there's this spy that has seen the whole thing. And that takes us to, to verse 10. And once again, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Akrish, the king of Gath. Um, this is... Wait, what? That's literally what I wrote for the title of this. David is now leaving Israel-controlled lands. He's going into Philistine-controlled hands. He's got the sword of Goliath, and he's basically going to Goliath's hometown, trying to seek refuge from Saul. Some people are thinking, well, he's, he's just desperate. Maybe he's thinking, the enemy of my enemy? You know, maybe I can work something out. He's trying to do that. I think this is one of the, one of the few cases we see David just make a really bad kind of military decision. It's just, why would you be so desperate and fearful that you run into the enemy, enemy lands? He's got this bread and the sword, and he goes to Akish, the king of Gath. And for some reason, David thinks he's not going to be recognized. He's carrying Goliath, the champion sword. And right away in verse 11, And the servants of Akish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Even the enemies know this song. Everybody's singing it. David takes these words to heart. Again, David is, is fearful. He realizes he's made a really bad decision. So he changed his behavior before them, verse 13, and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his, ser his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? 
Do I not do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? It's it's almost it's almost comical. This is God's anointed, and he's reduced to making himself drool and scrabble little things on the wall and his only play now to get out of the their hands is I just gotta act crazy. This is David has fallen as far as he can fall. Right? If we, we think back to earlier, he's lost his position, he's lost his prestige, he's lost his wife, his spiritual counselor in Samuel, he's lost his good friend. Now David has no dignity to be humbled like that before the enemy king. God is taking away and allowing things to be taken away from David. Because God needs to deal with David's fear. One last thing on this passage. Um, the king's response is almost, I think it's out of the comedy. They bring the servants, bring them in. David's there going, trying to go crazy. And the king says, don't I have enough crazy people around here? Get him out of here. Am I short on crazy people? You got to bring me another one? Get him out of here. Can't get, get, can't get good help. After the fact, David takes no credit for this, this escape. Um, in Psalm 56 and Psalm 34, he writes those psalms in response to, to God delivering him from the hands of the enemy. David makes a really bad strategic decision out of desperation and fear, and yet God, God delivers him. So it's, it's easy to, to pick apart and pick on David, right? So much of his life is written on paper. <laughs> if, if that much of my life is written on paper, you know, I would, you know, I wouldn't, that definitely would not be in front of you all. Um, I wanted to share a story about fear in my life and how going through a season of fear and dread and worry, how it changed me and how thankfully God is starting to deliver and change things in my life. Um, as many of y'all know, I've had to travel a lot this year. Starting back in January, uh, I had to go to Okinawa for three weeks. So back here for three weeks, back to Okinawa for three weeks, back home for a few weeks, went to Idaho for two weeks, back home, went to Tokyo for another couple weeks. Just lots of travel. And in the midst of this year, uh, as we started the year, my wife and I said, Lord, we'd, we'd like to have our second child. Please bring that about in your timing. And so my first trip to, to Okinawa, um, I wake up to one of those text messages that says, call me. If, if you've ever had one of those, you can imagine that sudden sense of your back straightens up. You're like, what's, what's going on? The fear and the dread begin to, to set in. So I, I call my wife, at this point foolishly still thinking about, this is going to cost $2 a minute. What's <laughs> going on? <laughs> and she says, I, I didn't want to tell you this way, but uh, I'm pregnant. However, I'm, I'm at the doctor's office, and there's some issues, and it looks like we're going to lose the baby. 
and that, that's what I hear from the conversation. We, we say some other things, but I, I've just woken up. It's the middle of the afternoon for her. I'm trying to process this, and I, I can't process it. So that's, that's January and February. Uh, March, I have to return to Okinawa. Um, there's no news on the, the pregnancy front for that trip. I know we're not pregnant. No baby for now. I'm thinking everything's okay. I think I'm fine. I think, foolishly, I think I'm fine. Not really. Uh, May rolls around, and I'm in Idaho. And I get the phone call, uh, we're pregnant. So my wife is here, I'm in Idaho, we're pregnant. And what immediately goes on in my head, this will give you a sense of the, the analytical kind of Spock maybe person I am, is, okay, Kyle, you've got a decision. You can embrace and accept your emotions and let yourself have joy, or you can give in to the fear. God may not protect this baby. He's going he's gonna to leave you and your wife defenseless again. Don't, don't enter into joy. And so I, I ask God to help me with that, and I try to enter into the joy that we're going to have a child. A few days later, my wife calls and said, um, I don't know what happened. The doctor won't say. Possibly it's miscarriage number two. Possibly it's false pregnancy. Maybe it's a chemical pregnancy. We don't know. I still don't know. We had two days of, I'm trying to embrace joy, and then it's taken away. If you, if you don't know anything else about me, I'm a bottler. I can take stuff and just put a cork in it, move on. And I, th I think I'm dealing with it, and I think everything's okay. And then uh, Mother's Day happened. We're in the kitchen. We're about to have my, all of our family over. It's going to be great. And I began to notice my wife had made these little photo flower bouquets for my mom and for her mom. And my, my, my daughter is sitting there doing roll call. You know, kids like to say names. And she's listing all of her cousins. And then it was like the levee broke. It's like, there should be another picture there. That's what I say in my head. There should have been another picture there. And that's when my heart breaks and I begin to unpack this anger that I had bottled up against God. God, why is that? Why did you take that that picture? Why did you take that little baby away? I don't open up the bottle all the way, right? Because, well, our parents are here. We don't want to make a scene. Don't want to talk about it. I don't want to ruin their day. I don't want to impose on them. I'm just going to go outside and stick my head in the barbecue pit, and I'm just going to do that. Another, you can add to the list of bad decisions that I've made in this process. Um, this is what I call the tortoise and the hare, my wife, emotionally. I'm the emotional tortoise. She's the emotional hare. Um, she has already, in a healthy way, started to deal with this whole thing. I've put it off. And I'm finally starting to deal with it. So July rolls around, and I have to go to Tokyo for three weeks. I am full of fear and dread that, oh no, am I going to get another text message, another phone call, right? And the underlying thing behind it all is, I am doubting God's provision, and I am doubting God's protection. So maybe it's because
I'm a guy, I don't know, maybe it's just because I felt like I had to do something. I have to, I have to do something. Maybe I have to show my faith. I, I have to do something. And so I'm walking through the commissary of the grocery store, and there's a guy that makes little keychains. He takes a little piece of wood, and he has a little uh, a burner gun, and he, he carves things into these keychains. And he had a keychain that had two little birds on it. It was a mama bird and a daddy bird, and then a little baby bird popping out of an egg. And I saw that, and you can tell I have a little girl, not little boys. I'm like, oh, that's cute, you know. And uh, but I said, you know, God, I, right? In the old days, they would build a an altar, and they would say, every time we see this, we need to be reminded of our faith. And I said, God, I need something visual that me and my wife can look at, and that we're we're going to put our faith in you. And so um, I have this guy carve this keychain. There's the mama and the daddy bird, and that's what we're hoping for, the second uh, little baby bird. It's not there yet. I don't even know if God is going to deliver that to us. But we're, we're saying, God, this is what we're trusting you for. This is our prayer. We're going to wait on your timing. Well, September rolls around, and I'm s- I work at home a couple days a week, and I'm sitting there, and... My daughter, she's about two and a half. She walks and she waddles into the room. (laughs) And she's holding, you know, the little home pregnancy test. And there it is, clear as day. Like sometimes you see those tests and you're like, I don't know what I'm looking at. But this one was, (laughs) there's no denying. It's going to be a baby. And again, there I was faced with that decision. God, do I enter into the joy and trust you? Or God, do I say, I can't enter into that joy because I don't trust you. And so that's, that's where I am. I'm stuck in that tension. God, I, I want to I take joy in this. I want to trust you. Um, I've got a lot of travel coming up. Um, having a baby kind of wiggles you out of it a little bit. So, But I've got those trips coming up, and I'm, I'm going to have that, that fear and doubt and dread. So as we, as we close our time together, maybe you've had a similar situation. Maybe you've, had, uh, maybe you've had something worse. Maybe you've, like David, you've lost your job. You've lost people that are important to you. Um, I was talking with somebody earlier. They lost their car. I know that's happened a couple of times to different people at Alamo Stone. Are you dealing with that loss? Are you, are you starting to get weighed down by that fear? And... Right, and this is, this is bad, right? You're supposed to give people three questions. I gave you six. <laughs> <coughs> right, and so maybe you can write them down. Maybe you can take a quick picture. Has, fe- has the fear of something shaken your faith? I went through that. I think everybody has gone through that. Has the link- length of a difficult season shaken your faith? Maybe it's caused you to take your eyes off of God and instead of setting your mind on the things of God, you've set your mind on the thing that causes you fear, doubt, worry. More specifically, do you doubt in the provision and protection of God? What actions are you taking to face your fears? The action I took 
was just bottle those emo emotions up and that there no problem there yeah that was a problem are you fixing your own problems or waiting in faith for God's provision and God's protection are you willing to wait on the Lord in the midst of that fear in the midst of the wave coming down on you are you keeping your eyes on the Lord and waiting for his provision and protection Can you remember a time of God's provision and protection? And I hope we can take this question into our time at Chick-fil-A. I hope we can discuss that together. Where you can say, hey, I remember a time God provided and protected us. And if you have those stories in mind, I would encourage you to go through these questions again. Because that's what I had to do. As I begin to set my mind on what God has done, what he's promised to do, what I know he can do, it changed my fear. The, fear. the fear was still there, but it changed my perspective. Instead of being David, being fearful and running for his life, inched more towards the David when he's facing Goliath. I'm confident in the covenant God has made with me. And so I, I encourage you to, to, go through the, to go through those questions, and I hope the time at, at dinner can be spent talking about God's provision and God's protection. So, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We want to acknowledge that you are good and that you, you've provided for us and God, that you protect us. God, even when we doubt in those things, God, we pray that you would help us to be assured of those things. God, I pray you would help us to remember what you have already done. God, bring to mind those times when you were faithful, you provided, you protected. God, if we're so far down that we can't think of those times, I pray that you would bring another believer into our life who can share those stories where God was faithful. God, I pray that our minds would be fixed on you and not dominated by our fears and our worries and our anxieties. God, we're not going to be perfect but we thank you that your grace covers us when we're not perfect. We thank you, Lord. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.